three years ago in February, so just a little more than three years ago now, there was what was called a called special general conference. Now, this is going to get really inside baseball for a moment, so just bear with me. The United Methodist Church, the whole of the United Methodist Church, the whole global United Methodist Church was going to have a special meeting where about 980 people who represent Methodism across the world were going to get together in St. Louis to have a meeting about the future of the denomination. Uh, because for the 20 years leading up to this meeting, there had been a lot of infighting in the denomination about LGBTQIA plus persons. Whether people who are LGBTQIA plus could be ordained and whether or not they can get married in the United Methodist Church. So up until 2019, there were people who were fighting about whether this is the way it should be or if it should change. And churches on either end of the theological spectrum left because of it. There were churches that were very progressive that said the church is too traditional. And there were churches that were very traditional that said the church is not traditional enough. And so year after year, more and more churches left the denomination to go strike out on their own. So in 2019, the whole denomination got together to vote, what are we going to do going forward? Are we going to continue to say that uh, the practice of homosexuality is incompatible with Christian teaching, or are we going to change? And for three days, it was a knockout, dragout fight, as things go in theological circles. I was there. I was in St. Louis. Uh, some friends and I who have a podcast together, we went as press to cover the event, to record interviews with people who were there, to report back to the denomination, but also to our respective churches about what we had seen and what we had heard. I have to tell you, it was absolutely awful, just about every part of it. To watch people stand up and talk in favor or against certain human beings was one of the most awful experiences of my life. And it kept going back and forth and back and forth and back and forth until it was time to take a final vote because there was a monster truck rally that was going to be coming in the convention center and it was time for us to leave. They needed to pour dirt on the floor so that monster trucks could come in and we Methodists had to flee. So at the very, very end of the conference, they put it up to a vote. Do we stay traditional or do we take a step into the future? And everybody had their little voting devices, all thousand people who were voting, and they voted. It was two minutes of silence. It was the only silence that I experienced the whole time I was there. <clears throat> and after the two minutes came to a conclusion, they put up on the screen what the vote was. 52% wanted to stay traditional. 48% didn't. But it's a simple majority, and that held. And so it was clear in that vote that the church was split almost right down the middle. 52% wanted to stay traditional. 48% did not. And it was unclear about what was going to happen. This was what the whole thing was about, to figure out what was going to happen. And very, very softly, some people who were down on the floor started clapping. This is my story. This is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. This is my story, this is my song, praising my Savior all the day long. It was a contingency of those who had voted for a new flavor, a new version of Methodism, who had just been told that they were no longer compatible with the church. And so they stood off in the corner, they had rainbow stoles on, and they grieved giant auditorium and I could hear them crying all the way up in the press box 
Some of them were down on the floor on their knees, banging in the ground, asking, why God, why God? Crying and weeping. And at the same time, a group of the people who voted for the traditional model of the church, they also got up and they organized together and they didn't sing a song. They started embracing each other and clapping and laughing and celebrating their victory. It was awful. And I remember being up in the press box and the only thing I could think to myself was, where the hell is Jesus? Because if he's here, I wonder what group he's with. Is he hugging and embracing and singing and laughing? Or is he weeping and lamenting and crying? Our scripture today comes from Luke 13th chapter, verses 31 through 35. At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. He said to them, go and tell that fox for me, listen, I'm casting out demons and performing cures today and tomorrow, and on the third day I finish my work. Yet today, tomorrow, the next day, I must be on my way, because it is impossible for a prophet to be killed outside of Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often have I desired to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See Your house is left to you. And I tell you, you will not see me until the time comes when you say, Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Would you please pray with me? May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. For some reason, the political and the religious authorities are threatened by this poor and wandering rabbi named Jesus with his messages of the kingdom of God. Now, they're threatened because talk of the meek inheriting the earth will always call into question those who have all of the power and the prestige, which makes this scripture to me very, very strange. It's peculiar to me that the protective warning comes not from the disciples, but from the Pharisees, who up to this point in the gospel have been anything but concerned for Jesus' well-being. It's the Pharisees who say, get out of here, Jesus. Herod's going to kill you. And he brushes it aside. He says, you tell that dirty, rotten scoundrel, I've got things to do, that I've got places to be. During this season we call Lent, the strange new world of the Bible, it points us to the cross Just as the city of Jerusalem is looming on the horizon for Jesus, so too it is for us, because Jerusalem is the end. And Jesus loves Jerusalem, but it's a strange love. Jesus describes his own love for a city like a mother hen who desires to bring her brood under her wings. And yet, Jerusalem's responded to God's love again and again with violence and selfish ambition and retribution. Jesus loves Jerusalem, but in the end, his love for her will be the death of him. And though it pains us to admit the same is true for us, Jesus' love for us in the midst of our sin-sick souls is such that it leads to his end. Had we been there, we too would have shouted, crucify. There are some texts in the Holy Scriptures that seem to be nothing but trouble. Jesus here He complains about the wandering hearts of Jerusalem, about how they fail to see the truth that's right in front of their faces. 
When he says, see, your house is left to you, that sounds kind of like a threat. But in the Bible, whenever trouble is present, grace isn't far away. There's this great inversion between the good and the bad, the in and the out, the elect and the reject. It's there from the beginning. Cain kills Abel. And though God sets Cain to wander the earth for the rest of his days, he is also marked so that the fate he brought to his brother will not be brought to him. Jacob swindles his brother Esau out of the inheritance, but he's confronted by an angel of the Lord who knocks his hip out of socket for the rest of his days, and then he reconciles with the brother that he wronged. The favor of the Lord moves from Saul to David, and yet David commands the people of Israel to weep and mourn upon the death of their former king. So whenever we encounter someone or a group who appears to be rejected by God, there is also a sense in which they are elected by God. It's what grace is all about. Grace. We throw that word around in the church all the time, but grace isn't amazing unless there's a reason for it. Put another way, the law of God is given that grace might be sought, and the grace of God is given that the law might be fulfilled. We need rejection and election. We need law and gospel because that's what life is like. Karl Barth said that there is no light that also doesn't know darkness. There's no joy that doesn't have within it sorrow. There's no rage, no fear that does not also have peace nearby. No laughter without tears, no weeping without laughter. Even John Wesley once said that every law contains a hidden promise. Grace abounds. In theological speak, we might call it a hermeneutic of inversion, an understanding that that Jesus has turned things upside down. So even in this passage, Herod wants to kill Jesus, but what we realize knowing the end of the story is that Jesus wants to save Herod. We read about how Jerusalem will bring about Jesus' death, and at the same time, Jesus' death will bring about the salvation for Jerusalem, which is another way of saying there is always more to the story than the story itself. As I said last week, and I'll say probably every week during Lent, there's something about the text that we read this time of year, something about the stories that we encounter, the songs that we sing, that we can't help but ask ourselves, who in the world is this Jesus that we keep worshiping? I mean, why is he so upset about Jerusalem? Why does he lament what they are doing and what they will do? You know, in another part of Scripture, Jesus will tell the disciples to brush the dust off their feet of a town that doesn't receive them. But Jerusalem? Why does... Why does Jesus want to gather them in like a mother hen with her chicks? You know, Luke doesn't tell us that Jesus weeps over Jerusalem, but Matthew does. And I think that's rather revealing. I did a funeral one time for a man whose daughter had not one kind thing to say about her father. When I met with her, she told me the awful and despicable and downright rotten things that he did to her during her life. To me, it was a miracle she even showed up for his funeral. And after we buried him in the ground and I still had dirt in my hands, I found her on the side of the cemetery and she was crying. And when I walked over to her and I asked her why she was crying, she said, I don't know. I don't know. What good does it do us to lament something that's bad? The target's on Jesus' back. Herod wants him dead. Jesus brushes it away like it's nothing, and then he laments. He laments not because his life is about to come to an end. He laments over Jerusalem and what they have done and what they will do. He laments. He grieves. He weeps. Lent for us is a chance to lament, or Lent is a chance to lament. 
Whereas the world always wants to move us from one thing to the next thing to the next thing, Lent says, pause, slow down. It's time to sit and grieve and lament and acknowledge that not all is right with the world, nor is it with us. We've behaved badly. We have done things we ought not to have done. We have left far too many things undone. And yet when it comes to offering lamentations, we are far more inclined to lament what happens to other people in other places. So it's not hard for us to imagine Jesus lamenting over Jerusalem, just as we can maybe imagine Jesus today lamenting over Russia. Oh, Russia, oh, Russia. Look at what you're doing to the people of Ukraine. You're dropping bombs on maternity wards. You're displacing children from their parents. You're destroying your own souls. How I have longed to hold you within my loving embrace. Look at what you've become. And yet the inconvenient truth of the gospel is that for as much as Jesus weeps about other people and other places, Jesus also weeps and laments over us. I wonder how Jesus would react to us today. What would happen if Jesus looked down upon us from the top of Mill Mountain? Would he cry? Would he lament? See, prophets, they call into question the powers and the principalities regarding all of their powers and their prestige. Prophets point right smack dab into our hearts, our desires, our sins, our shortcomings. They hold up a mirror to us about who we really are, and they beg us to see the truth. It's no wonder then that prophets live such short lives. No one likes confronting the condition of their condition. My friends, professors, a former bishop in the church, Will Williman, tells a story about how when he was a child in Greenville, South Carolina, there was news in the town that Billy Graham was coming for a revival. And all of the churches in town were losing their minds. They were so excited that Billy Graham was coming to Greenville, South Carolina. So all the churches were making plans about how they were going to go to the big convention center to, to see Billy Graham. And that at Will's church, they had a meeting, whether or not they, their little United Methodist Church, should go to see the revival with Billy Graham. The pastor of that church, he stood up, he made this impassioned plea. Think about Billy Graham. He's winning people for Christ. What a remarkable opportunity for our town, for our church. And then someone raised his hand. He said, well, I'm not so sure about that, Pastor. I mean, Billy Graham, he seems nice and charming, maybe a little handsome, but did you hear that he lets black folk and white folk sit together at his revivals? I don't know about that, preacher. I don't know if we should involve ourselves with someone who supports integration. And Will says that's all it took. Right then and there they voted and they said, we are not going to Billy Graham's revival. We are not going to support his sinful racial mixing. Will was a kid. He said that afterwards he got up to leave the church, but he forgot something in one of the rooms, and so he turned back, and while he's walking down one of the hallways in the church, he heard the sound of weeping. And so he crept down the hallway, and he saw that the pastor's door to the office was open, and Will couldn't help himself. He peeked in, and he saw his pastor, the pastor who stood up in the pulpit Sunday after Sunday, and he found him on the ground, and he was weeping. There was something troubling and profound about the cross. The cross for us is, of course, a sign, it's a marker of our delivery from sin and death. But in the cross, we also discover our own reckless rebellion against the one who came to live, die, and live again for us. 
Jesus laments, Jesus grieves the city of Jerusalem. He weeps with the knowledge of his desire to gather people in love and how they constantly refuse. He says, the house is left to you. The house is left to us. You know what happens when we're in charge of the house? We like to make decisions about who is in and who is out. We like to formulate rules about who is first and who is last, who is right, who is wrong, who is rejected, who is elected. And so long as the house is left to us, it will not look like the kingdom of God. Instead, it will be the place that kills prophets and stones those who are sent to it. God in Christ desperately desires to gather us in, the lost and forsaken, like a hen gathers her brood, and we refuse. So Jesus leaves the house to us, but not forever. Truly, I tell you, Jesus ends today. You will not see me until the time comes when you say, Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Those are the words that the crowds sing while waving their palm branches as Jesus enters the city on the back of a donkey. They're the same words that we ourselves will be singing in just a few weeks. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. You see, the good news is that Jesus, in fact, does not abandon us to our own devices, nor does Jesus leave us to our own houses. Instead, he arrives in the strangest of ways. He bangs on the doors of our own creation and he says, this is my father's house. Blessed is Jesus who comes in the name of the Lord because he is like us, but he is also completely unlike us. He weeps, he laments over us precisely because we don't deserve it. He desires to gather us in even when we push him away. He still mounts the hardwood of the cross, knowing full and well that when push comes to shove, our hosannas will turn to crucify in the blink of an eye. He still breaks forth from the tomb, even though we put him there. Jesus is with us today, and he says, look at who you are. Look at what you're doing. Jesus laments and cries, even for us. You know, keeping up with the disruptive and demanding movements of a holy and righteous God, it is not for the faint of heart. It's enough to make you cry. So I offer this to you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God now and forever. Amen.